to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person eager to talk to an effective change maker, organic uh, farmer Bob Quinn. He, with co-author Liz Carlisle, published a new book, Grain by Crane, A Quest to Revise Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. Bob has earned the Montana Organic Association's Lifetime of Service Award, the Organic Trade Association's Organic Leadership Award, and Rodell's Institute Organic Pioneer Award, and he credits his success on a consumer who once thanked him. Welcome. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, I love this story that you told um, about the person who went up and thanked you. So you want to start there? Well, that was an experience we had, um, gosh, in the early 90s. My wife and I were at a food show in California, and um, I was raised on a wheat and cattle ranch in north central Montana. And all my life, we heard about raising commodities. And, uh, yeah, I was at a food show selling uh, our wheat and stone ground flour and uh, an ancient grain that we were, had developed. And this lady came up to me just out of the blue, shook my hand just very firmly and looked right in my eyes and said, thank you for growing food for my family. And that was something I'd never, ever heard before. You know, uh, wheat commodity farmers don't go to farmer's markets, and they have no idea who their end customers are, and we never hear a thank you. Um, We get uh, criticized for what we haul into the elevator in the hopes that uh, the people buying the grain from us might be able to justify paying us less and finding something to matter. And so they (laughs) they never say thank you. And uh, it was quite a um, turning point in how I looked at my farm. I never – after that, I went home and I never looked at my farm again the same way. And from that time forward, I never grew another commodity on my farm. I, I only grew food and good food for people's uh, enjoyment, for their health and their vitality, and, their, and the same for their families and their friends. Yeah, because conformi- uh, commodity farming has separated people from our food. And- it really has. We have um, been overlaid with uh, an image of industrialization of agriculture and industrialization of our farms with the idea that this is progress and this is uh, efficiency and this is how we raise more commodities, more wheat, uh, more corn, more um, cotton and soybeans. And without really much thought that we're really raising food in, in most cases. I mean, cotton's not food, of course, but um, wheat and, and uh, is certainly uh, the staff of life, as it has been known for so many years. And yet we don't think of it that way. We think of it more as a commodity to be traded and to be um, bargained with on the commodity exchange. And uh, we have so many people between us and our end users now in processing and, and production and the people who sell us inputs that we um, rarely think about the end users. Yeah. And so um, you ended the presentation with um, each one of us can be a drop and together we can make a wave, which I really <laughs> liked because there's a part of me, even when you want to say that, there's part of me that wants to start saying, OK, and the average farmer is losing money and our soil is becoming dead and it's toxifying our water and our health is going down. And how do we make it better? I mean, that's sort of the that that's that's the meaning and purpose of life is to make it better. Right. That's not. Yes, and I think it's easy to get overwhelmed by the um, bad news part of the story. And in my my mind, um, the bad news part of the story shouldn't depress us. It should give us incentive to change. And not that we can change everything at once or that one person can change everything. That's really not how it works. Change starts just by one a small act, but compounded by uh, thousands and millions of people also doing one small act, and pretty soon you have a big change. And your small acts have really added up to some big changes. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting into this story. We have the full hour with you, uh, organic farmer Bob Quinn. So I want to start now um, with just tell us about growing up. Well, I grew up, as I mentioned, um, near a small town of Big Sandy uh, in, the, in the 60s, 50s and 60s. I went to high school in Big Sandy. It was a thousand people um, living in that town when I graduated in 1966. There were 40 in our graduating class. I moved back to the farm in um, 78, and now the town had dwindled down to about 600. By the time my kids graduated from high school, there were less than 20 in the graduating class. And it's a lot of many small and rural towns throughout, especially the West, 
and maybe the Midwest too. And uh, I, I was concerned about that. I was concerned that um, we were living in a, a time where we we're heralding the uh, productivity of farmers, and yet farmers were leaving. And um, half my neighbors that I grew up with were gone. By the time my kids were riding the bus, <laughs> the bus was half empty compared to when I rode the bus to school. And um, yet I felt that uh, we were not really making progress when we looked at the picture as a whole. Our communities were going down. Uh, business was going uh, broke. Um, our, our planet was becoming more polluted. Um, the um, magic um, herbicides and chemicals that were touted to be the end-all and be-all of agriculture were now producing um, uh, resistant weeds and uh, no longer being effective as they once were. Uh, fertilizers were polluting our streams. And so it just went on and on. I felt like there was a different um, – there had to be a different – answer to this right and now you um you earned a phd from uc davis um in 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 the um 60s and 70s where you were taught better farming through chemistry that was the approach (laughs) and your dad was president of the montana farmers bureau so it was so you came at tell us about that orientation well, I was raised in a very what they call conventional. You know, if you look at the history of of um, agriculture, what we've done the last seventy years is not conventional at all. It's it's a, a very new and radical um, departure from what was conventional for thousands of years. But that's what I was raised with was uh, modern agriculture. We might call it um, high input, high output agriculture. Um, we were relying on the the wonders, like you say, the wonders of chemistry to grow more wheat, more barley, and um, uh, everything seemed uh, perfectly normal with that because that's what I was grown up uh, understanding, and and uh, we saw it working in the, in the in the point that we were getting more bushels. Um, we weren't getting more money because the commodity market, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, would fluctuate and go up and down and in the low points. We had a hard time paying for all these inputs. But I went to Montana State University after graduating from high school and then on to UC Davis because I really love plants and I wanted to study plants and become a great plant scientist. This is my goal and that's my idea. And yet I was a little disillusioned by the time I finished um, 10 years of university. Uh, not that I was disillusioned with chemical agriculture because I wasn't questioning that at the time. I was disillusioned with the fact that um, scientists were in competition with one another to get funding and they and they no longer uh, – well, maybe they never did. But I had the idea that they would cooperate <laughs> and work together and try to push back the, the frontiers of knowledge and that sort of thing. And I was a little disappointed when I didn't find that was the main focus and – and it was just it wasn't because the scientists didn't want to do it it was because they were scrapping for funding um, and they were forced to do what they did the systems that we have in place and and so you've really helped change those systems and I'm eager to know that story but so but in in the uh, so in in 1978 you moved back to the farm yes. and that was the time in between 1950 and 1997 America lost more than 3 million family farmers so you went back to the land, and you happened to stumble on some small cooperative bakeries that were looking for whole grains. Well, they yes. <laughs> we got back to the farm, and it, it was 2,400 acres. That was about average size for Montana at that time. And even though it had provided a very good living for one family, it didn't really provide a good living for two. And um, my dad was still oh, 10 years from retirement or so, um, he was getting active in the Montana Farm Bureau, as you mentioned, so he welcomed um, me back uh, with open arms and to have a partner on the farm. It's very different when you're growing up on the farm as a uh, high school kid and, and uh, asked to do chores and then coming back as an adult, as a partner with your dad. That was really a great experience for me. And I'm sure for your dad to be around his three grandchildren. Yes, that was really a lot of fun, too. And uh, my folks moved to town just about 12 miles away, so we had a lot of interaction. But I was seeing that um, the longevity of farm really the economic outlook really wasn't too bright. And so I figured we need to do something more to bring an income to the farm. And I didn't really want to go to town to get a job. That's what a lot of my friends did. <clears throat> but I um, had a friend, a cousin, a distant cousin in California 
came to visit me, and he wasn't really doing anything. Looking, He was looking for a job, too, uh, of sorts. And um, I said, well, why don't you see if you can sell my wheat in, um, to, to, to bakers in California? Because we had had a little experience doing that when I was at Davis with a, a company at Justo's um, in um, the Bay Area. And yet that worked for a couple of years, and then we sold to them for a couple of years, and then they disappeared uh, as far as a, a customer of ours. And we didn't really know why. So I said to him, why don't you go see if you can find a baker? And within a week, he found a fellow that um, uh, had a very large bakery in Southern California that was looking for high-quality, high-protein wheat, and that's what we had. And we started selling it to him by the truckload, and um, immediately it improved the economics of the farm. Right, and so then he said he wanted organic, and that was the first time you even heard that word, really, right? Well, or almost the <laughs> it first was time. the uh, the next year he asked for organic, and I had heard of organic, but I didn't really give it much consideration. I thought it was um, a bunch of hooey, you know. <laughs> I I was uh, raised and, and taught in university that that plants couldn't tell the difference between nitrogen coming out of a manure pile and one coming from a bag of of uh, chemical fertilizer, and that's what I believed. And uh, I didn't really give the organic uh, movement, which is really quite small at that time, much account. And uh, because my customer, however, wanted some organic grain, I went looking for some. And I finally found some about 300 miles away in northeastern Montana. And, and that was my first introduction to a real organic farmer. A real organic farmer. And that, and, and so uh, and then you slowly transitioned 20 acres and then... You had so much success that the entire farm became organic. Yes. And, but you also stumbled on some ancient green that you nicknamed first King Tut. And that's what we're going to talk about when we return. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm Laura Hedlund with organic farmer Bob Quinn. Hi, it's Tom Hartman. You know, Continental Diamond is special for a lot of reasons. The owners are Jimmy and Helene Pessis, a husband and wife team who had a dream to open their own store more than 30 years ago. They built a business that is the gold standard. The readers of Minnesota Bride Magazine have named Continental Diamond the best jeweler for the last seven years. Why? Amazing, friendly, no-pressure customer service, a selection of fine diamonds and design jewelry unlike anywhere else, and the fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies are pretty great, too. Continental Diamond in St. Louis Park and at ContinentalDiamond.com. Supporting the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities has never been easier. You'll find an expansive list of local dining options at eatlocalminnesota.com, from classic American comfort food to authentic flavors from around the world. Cafe Latte offers made-from-scratch soups, salads, sandwiches, and mouth-watering desserts. Stop in the wine bar and enjoy a unique pizza loaded with fresh vegetables and perfectly roasted meats. Over 30 wines by the glass, Cafe Latte highlights Washington State wines and is the perfect destination for date night or an evening with friends. 850 Grand Avenue, St. Paul. Victor's 1959 Cafe has been serving South Minneapolis traditional Cuban food for over 15 years. Victor's is open for breakfast and lunch daily and now accepts dinner reservations too. Stop in and try the Pollo Tropicale or the Sandwich Cubano, which was featured on Food Network. More at eatlocalminnesota.com. Hi, this is Ken Hagland, host of Living Healthy and Aging Well, inviting you to listen to our new show airing on Saturdays from noon to one, where we talk about your health and your life and provide insights to living and aging well. Each week, we provide answers to important questions regarding health care, elder care, end-of-life care, and caregiver support to help you and your loved ones plan for the future and enjoy your highest quality of life today. Please join us every Saturday from noon to one for Living Healthy and Aging Well. This is Chad, owner of AM950, here to tell you about Snap Construction. They're experts in roofing, siding, window, and insurance restoration. They have energy-efficient products available for both residential and commercial properties. This spring, when we needed a company to take a look at a problem with our roof, I called the company I knew I could trust, Snap Construction. I've known Ryan, the owner at Snap Construction, for years, so I knew I could trust him. Don't just take my word for it. Check out their reviews online. They are arguably the most well-reviewed exterior contractor online in the metro area. Over the years, Ryan has always said the same thing to me about his work. If we build it, shouldn't we be held accountable for the work indefinitely? He backed that statement up years ago when Snap Construction was a pioneer in offering a lifetime craftsmanship guarantee on all their work. For a free estimate or general questions, call the locally owned company AM950 Trusts, Snap Construction at 612-333-SNAP. 
That's 612-333-SNAP. Or find them online at snapconstruction.com. They have financing options available. Freedom Radio on AM 950, the Regressive Voice of Minnesota. I'm Laura Hedlund with organic farmer Bob Quinn. And Bob Quinn, why would we be playing King Tut music from Saturday Night Live in the late 70s? <laughs> <laughs> well, in the late, um, or when you used to say early 60s, I attended a, um, a county fair in Fort Benton, Montana, which is near our home. And for the first time, I saw what I was told to me was King Tut's wheat. <laughs> uh, this fellow was passing this old man. I was probably younger than I am now, but I was just in high school, and he had a, a Folgers, an old Folgers can, a coffee can, and he was passing out this old grain by the handful. And he said to me, hey, Sonny, he says, would you like some of King Tut's wheat? <laughs> and so I said, oh, sure. And I walked over, and he poured this in my hand. It was a giant grain. It was three times the size of normal wheat. And the story was that um, this fellow from our county in Montana was um, uh, stationed in Portugal, in the Air Force, and a buddy of his uh, went to Egypt on furlough, and he came back and said, hey, look what I got from Egypt. And he poured out a little bit of, uh, of this giant wheat, and he said, I got this out of a tomb in Egypt. And and uh, and he talk, and his friend talked him out of 20 or 30 kernels. He sent it home to his dad, and he started planting it. This is about 1950, and it grew, and, and they called it King Tut's Wheat. And it was just a novelty, and it was really never developed into anything commercial, but a few people would plant it. I had heard about it when I was growing up, but that was the first time I'd seen it. And so um, you uh, you planted it, and, and, and then what happened? Tell us. Well, I actually have to jump forward 14 years till I was finishing my Ph.D. at uh, UC Davis, and I was eating a, ca- uh, a bag of corn nuts one afternoon. And on the back of the corn nuts, it said, corn nuts made with a giant corn. And I thought, oh, I wonder if corn nuts would be interested in giant wheat. So I called them up, and they were just nearby in Oakland. I was in Davis at that point. And I got a hold of the uh, head of the research and development department, and uh, I told him my story. And I said, would you be interested in a giant wheat? And they said, oh, we might be interested in that. And so I called up my dad, and I said, Dad, see if you can find some of that old King Tut's wheat. And within a few days, he sent me, he said, well, I found some. I found a jar about half full, a pint jar, and um, he sent me a few tablespoons, and I sent it to Corn Nuts, and and they said, man, this is fantastic. This makes the best snack we've ever had. Well, of course, not better than their corn nuts, of course, but it was, they thought it was great. And they said, well, I think we, we could use 10,000 pounds right now. <laughs> and I said, so well, Corn Nuts wants to buy 10,000 pounds yeah. <laughs> of this can of wheat that you right. got from... Well, I didn't tell him I'd had less than a pound um, in stock. But I did tell him, I said, I said, well, we don't quite have 10,000 pounds now. But if you'll wait for a year or two, we'll have everything you want. And after a couple of years, we had 50 pounds. And I called him up, and the guy I talked to was gone. Uh, no one was interested anymore. And so we just put the, the sack of 50 pounds in our shed. And there it sat for about five years. So we went to our first food show in California. My dad and mom went with me to help um, set up our booth and, and, and run it. And my dad took this little jar full of this stuff, and he showed it to everybody. And after the food show, my cousin and I were trying to promote our organic, not organic, a little bit of organic at that point, but mostly stone ground whole wheat flour and high-protein wheat from Montana. And we had our pockets full of business cards. My dad had one business card from a guy who was interested. And because of that one person, we planted um, a half acre in 1986. So so I'm going to cut to the end of the story. So in 1986, you planted a half acre of some ancient grain. And in last year, uh, 200 farmers are planting over 100,000 acres of this ancient grain. Right. We, we contract now with organic farmers all over Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. A little bit of the Dakotas because that's where it grows best. It can't stand any rain the last six weeks before harvest, so we can't go very far east, into, especially in the corn country where it rains every week. Um, we can't do that because it's very susceptible to um, black tip and fungal diseases. But and you, and you're no longer calling it King Tut wheat. Why, well, why no. did you stop that? You got to, so was it really from some you, – you did some detective work to try to figure well, out what I it did. was. Um, and when we went to Europe, I started going to food shows in Europe, and it picked up steam there quite quickly. And I met a fellow from Egypt, 
And he invited me to come to Egypt, and I was very excited about that. And he said, we still have this growing in Egypt. And he took me and showed me some of his um, relatives were growing a little bit, and they're just in small plots. It wasn't commercially grown. It was grown because people still like to eat it. And when I went to the Cairo Museum, and I was really excited to see if I could see it for myself, and I went to the display on the grains that had taken out of the tombs, and I looked, and I studied it, and I saw that it wasn't the same. <laughs> and it was such a, a letdown to me because people have been telling the story for years. We knew it wasn't from King Tut's tomb exactly because that was, had been all excavated by that time. But we really believe the story they've been taking from a tomb um, of the of the era of the pharaohs and uh, because that's what we had been told. And that's not what I found. That's what I saw was something that really looked like einkorn. And that probably was more uh, the grain of the pharaohs in that time. Okay, so um, so what did you rename it? Well, actually, we never called it King Tut's Wait for very long because once we saw that there was a really a potential for this that people could eat it, but they couldn't eat modern wheat, we decided to uh, put together a registered trademark that we could sell it through. And I wondered what the ancient Egyptians called wheat. That was I thought that'd be what we should. Used for a trademark, and I found a hieroglyphic dictionary in the library in Great Falls, and um, it said that they called um, wheat kamut, K-A-M-U-T, and and they had the hieroglyphics for it and everything, and said because that was from a dead language, we were able to register that name as a trademark, and um, a trademark is not doesn't mean that we own something, but it's a product guarantee for our customers. And the first guarantee that we made that it would always be grown organically. Because by this time, I was true blue organic uh, promotion and grower and doing everything I could to promote organic agriculture. Yeah, and so tell us the difference between patent and trademark. Because anyone can grow um, this seed. So you're not, you don't patent it like other large companies that want to control all the seeds. Right, That's no. not what you're about. You're not about controlling it. But you are about protecting it, which includes that it must be grown organically without chemicals and no, mm-hmm. GM, no genetic modifications. Right. Well, I study Monsanto a lot. And, uh, of course, now it's Bayer. But, um, and everything that they do, I try to do the opposite. <laughs> And I think that that's a good um, uh, – that keeps me on online. And so rather than – you're right. Rather than patent the grain or try to own the grain, we, we consider the grain as a gift from our creator, a gift from God. It's available to everyone and should be available to everyone. And yet um, if you want to make product guarantees, we use a trademark to do that. So anyone can grow the grain, call it whatever they want and sell it in any way – or use it in any way they want. But if they want to uh, use a Kamut trademark, which has certain guarantees of being pure and high protein and always organic, then they have to be part of our program. And there again, we don't charge a big price for that. We don't charge the farmers for their seed. We give the farmers their seed for free, which is quite different what Monsanto does with their GMO uh, seeds. And then we only ask that those farmers replace that seed at harvest time. So it's sort of on loan to them and they replace it. And then we contract with them, of course, for a good price for what um, the rest of their harvest. But those are the sort of things we started out with. Um, And the uh, trademark then is used to identify the grain that we're trying to sell. Yeah, I, I just love the way you talk. We hear so much of this uh, division, and it's like, oh, is it capitalism or socialism? It's just being kind to one another, right? It's just common <laughs> yes. dignity we're, or something. Well, we're a community, and if we act like a community, we'll prosper as a community. Great. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking to organic farmer Bob Quinn. Does your dog deserve food that is as wholesome as the food you feed your family? Food that is natural without artificial ingredients? At Total Dog Company, we carry Nature's Logic brand dry and canned foods. Nature's Logic pet foods are made without any synthetic vitamin mixes or other synthetic nutrients. All the goodness comes from real food. Find Nature's Logic at Total Dog Company in New Hope, right off of 169 at 9432 36th Avenue North and at TotalDogCompany.com. 
Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at Seward.coop. Connections Radio Show is all about tapping into our hardwired hunger to connect. We examine meaningful connections to ourselves, our community, and the world around us by opening the door to innovative insights by a wide variety of interesting guests. We'll make the connections to something bigger than ourselves. Join me, Lori Fitz, your host of Connections Radio Show, and together we'll make the connections. Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. One of the best parts of spring is the annual Easter Brunch Buffet at the Park Tavern. Enjoy Easter ham and herb-crusted beef, eggs benedict, Atlantic cod, a variety of salads, sides, and desserts. Seatings are at 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Sunday, April 21st, and reservations are recommended. $20.95 for adults, $14.95 for seniors. Kids are $10.95 and 5 and under are free. And don't forget the hour of free bowling with every reservation. On Louisiana Avenue, north of Highway 7 in St. Louis Park, and at parktavern.net, a great Easter brunch with family is easy at the Park Tavern. Art lovers, it's time to celebrate, learn about, and collect local art at the St. Paul Art Crawl, running April 26th to 28th. The Spring St. Paul Art Crawl, presented by the St. Paul Art Collective, is a must-do experience that you will love. Over the weekend, you will have the chance to explore a wide variety of art while touring through local artist studios, lofts, and galleries. Up for purchase will be paintings, photography, pottery, sculpture, fiber arts, and more. The Art Crawl sprawls over 34 locations. Join the Art Crawl and discover outstanding art for your own. And when you buy local art, you're providing to artists so that they may continue to create the art we love. The Metro Transit is supporting the local art community, too, with free transit passes. Download your pass to ride buses and light rail for free during the Art Crawl. Be sure to get details at stpaulartcrawl.org. That's stpaulartcrawl.org. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Haas. Saturday, mostly cloudy with a high near 40. Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 46. And Monday, mostly sunny with a high near 51. Don't miss the Home Improvement and Design Expo this Saturday at the Veterans Memorial Community Center in Invergrove Heights. See up to 150 home improvement experts. The Home Improvement and Design Expo this Saturday only. It's a smart place to start your home improvement projects. See it all at expoguys.com. That's expoguys.com. Freedom Radio, where we plant to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headland, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person looking for effective um, change makers. And very happy to be interviewing um, organic farmer Bob Quinn. A uh, new book out called Grain by Grain: A Quest to Revive, Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Foods. So you are one of the uh, original organic farmers in Montana. Um, describe those years. Well, I started becoming interested in organic agriculture in the mid-'80s. And uh, once I met a couple of organic farmers, I was very, very interested in how they how they talked about their farm. Um, I hadn't really discovered this in any of my um, big farm groups I attend, like the Montana Grain Growers and Montana Farm Bureau. They weren't talking about uh, their fields and their crops and trying new things on their farm so much. Uh, as these organic farmers were. And these organic farmers were talking about rotations that helped them avoid use of chemical herbicides and pesticides, um, soil-building crops that uh, helped them avoid uh, buying expensive fertilizers and how the how the tilth of their um, fields were improving. They could tell by walking over them that the tilth was improving and how much fun they were having. <laughs> and that was really um, different to me. And it, and it, it caused me to want to uh, try my own experiments to see if it could work on my farm. So you tried it first um, with 20 acres. And, yes. <laughs> and so what was what was the result with the first 20 acres? Well, I was, 20 acres is about um, less than 1% of our, our cropping system, and my father was okay with that kind of an experiment. Um, it wasn't a big um, investment. And what we saw was that when we 
harvested our winter wheat side by side with the chemical uh, 20 acres compared to the organic 20 acres, we found that, and this is 20 acres that it was uh, on the organic side that was a plow down of alfalfa. So that's how we nourished the ground with alfalfa plow down. So we had very good nitrogen levels. And so when they harvested the proteins and the um, yields were nearly identical. They were uh, just a little above average that year was a, a little bit of average rainfall, so we had a little above average yields. But both of them were nearly the same. It was in one or two bushel and with one or two tenths of a protein. The proteins were over 15% and the yields were in the high 30s. Yeah. So and um, so I want to know what a, the culture of the Montana, because you were not – this was not a hippie area. Your, your, your dad was the uh, Minnesota Farm – Montana Farm Bureau president. How did your neighbors respond to this – Experiment well, in organics. I thought I'd been in California too long. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I converted my whole farm to organic within just a couple of years, I mean, that the, the uh, talk of the coffee shop, well, I was a new weed farmer on the block um, or in the community, and bets were taken of how long I was going to either uh, be before I went broke or just give up and, and regain my sanity and go back to what everybody else was doing. Um, no one believed it was possible. Um, and uh, we had a lot of uh, experimenting and uh, learning to do, and not everything worked perfectly. Uh, Laura, as you can imagine, we're trying a brand new system. But I, I started, even though I started small, I took a big jump into it. But luckily, I had mentors that helped uh, me and, and guided me with suggestions on what to do. And we started with um, with soil building crops like alfalfa and sweet clover that really helped build the soil in a short period of time and allowed it to be successful almost from the beginning. Right. And um, so I want to talk uh, a little bit about the health benefits that you discovered along the way, Um, the the health of both the ancient grains and the organic compared to conventional farming. Well, we were spurred on by the um, uh, testimonials of Many of our customers who said that they could not eat modern wheat, but they could eat our ancient wheat. And I, the scientists in me, really wanted to know why that was true. And I spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to uh, find people who would uh, run experiments for us and, and understand the difference and really be able to explain it. Uh, it wasn't good enough for me to just post a bunch of testimonials. I mean, everybody does that. but And that gives you some clues. But I really want to understand what was going on and what we've done. You know, right now in this country, almost 20% of the people cannot eat wheat comfortably. And to me, that's that's a big sign that we've taken a wrong turn somewhere. I mean, wheat is the staff of life. It's been the staff of life for thousands of years and built ancient civilizations. And now in the last 50 years, 20% of the people can't eat it. This is, I would, if I were, and I am a weak core, I would take great uh, offense, not offense, but notice of this and demand to know what's going on. I mean, I'm growing something that I thought was good for people and now they can't eat it. This is a, a big question. And I'm very surprised that more um, plant breeders and, and even processors and sellers of wheat uh, don't take um, note of this and trying to figure out what to do to make it better. What we see in, you know, in a typical American fashion, we see a um, not a, a solution, but a band-aid or, a, or just taking the easiest way out. And the easiest way out is say, oh, we got wheat-free, gluten-free. And so we see a huge increase in wheat-free, gluten-free um, industry, we might say, in this country without even spending hardly uh, any money on understanding what's happened and what we've done to our wheat. Mostly people don't believe or accept that something has gone wrong. But you can't argue with 20% of a, of a population. So we started researching this, <clears throat> and we've, we had a hard time finding people in America that wanted to even research it with us. So we found some willing folks in Italy, uh, University of Bologna, University of Florence, the research hospital there, and for the last oh, 12 to 15 years, we conducted um, clinical studies on on uh, chronic diseases such as heart disease, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome, diabetes, and now fibromyalgia. These are all chronic diseases that affect a growing number of people, not only in this country, but throughout the world. And they're all connected with 
with inflammation. And after we so, just – yeah, go yeah, ahead. Oh, no, no. This, so 31 peer-reviewed studies. Yes. So uh, you've spent millions – Well, articles, articles. articles. There's about six studies. About six studies. Of, of human clinical studies. But altogether, we published over 31 papers. Okay. So let's talk about the human study on, on the, the – uh, the, with the, um, uh, the humans that were fed the ancient grain and organic grain. Tell okay. us about that study. Well, they were all put together in the same um, pattern. We would divide the um, volunteers that had these diseases into two groups. One group would eat um, wheat that – well, they, we gave them all the wheat that they were to eat and told them not to buy or eat any wheat that we didn't give them. And we were told them we thought that these these uh, diets would help them feel better, um, <clears throat> which is something to, we did to avoid the placebo effect. We didn't want to have – them have any idea that they were comparing an ancient grain or modern grain or anything about this. We just told them these are two different diets. We gave them bread, um, pasta, crackers, and flour. They could make whatever they wanted with flour. We did tell them it was wheat, and um, but <clears throat> we told them to be very, very um, strict on eating that. And for the irritable bowel syndrome people, we asked them to keep a daily diary of how they felt. Uh, with diabetes and heart disease, you don't really feel much when you have this disease. You don't feel like you're sick. Um, with fibromyalgia, of course, you very much do. Um, and with irritable bowel uh, syndrome, you do. And um, what we would do is have these people eat these diets for six to eight weeks. Then there would be a washout period for the same time, which they could eat anything they wanted. And then each group would switch and eat the other diet. And we had that thereby an internal control, which made the studies much more strong than they would be just by eating one or the other. And uh, the results of this were, were staggering. They um, were completely ast- astonished our researchers who many of them didn't know which diets people were eating too. So it's a double-blind crossover study. Um, and what they found was that all of them had – the biggest difference was the anti-inflammatory properties. It was 35 to 45 percent greater than modern wheat. And that was the biggest finding. We also saw a decrease in cholesterol, a decrease in blood sugar, which is important for diabetes, of course, a decrease in insulin, insulin resistance. Also an increase in uh, magnesium and zinc and calcium in the blood, which are all positive things. And so we saw – things that you cannot even duplicate with drugs and medicines. So the idea that food should be our medicine and medicine should be our food taught by Hippocrates 2,300 years ago uh, came full force to me out of those experiments. Okay, so if we simply eat ancient grain that's been going for a thousand years, we can get the same type of health benefits as some people, as the same type of efficacy that some people are getting from pharmaceutical drugs. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying with, with chronic diseases that are linked to inflammation, you're probably going to have a diet which will help mediate that disease. It's not going to cure everything. This is not a cure-all. Right. This is something that um, helps you, helps healthy people stay healthy and help sick people become more or less sick. Um, it, it, you know, there's other things you need to be doing with your lifestyle and other parts of your diet that can um, uh, augment this. But to me, it opened up a whole new window on the understanding of the importance of food, the linking, the relinking of food and health. And I think we have for too long unlink those two things. We think we can eat all kinds of cheap garbage and wonder why we're not feeling well. And and then try to supplement that with all kinds of pills <clears throat> and then wonder what, still why we're relying on the pills and still not completely well. We function, but we're not completely well. And if we were eating a, a good diet, um, devoid of um, pesticide residues or organically grown, which we know also adds more um, antioxidant um, properties of polyphenols and that sort of thing to the food, we will experience what our ancestors experienced, and that's a, a vitality from a healthy diet. Vitality from a healthy diet. So the plant preview, the, the conventional food system um, for the last few decades has really been focused on just producing better yields mm-hmm. and with chemix, chemicals mm-hmm. um, without regard to the water, the soil quality. I mean, that's just, that's, just, that's just what they're looking at is just the yields. And cheap food. And, and therefore, cheap food. Because, because cheap because it's plentiful. Cheap and plentiful. 
But they haven't really been looking at health and vitality. No, no one imagined that they were linked in a way that made a difference and that anything in the breeding program or the production program was detracting from that. No one imagined that. And when it was started to be pointed out, most of them didn't believe it. And they ridiculed people, particularly in the beginning, were severely ridiculed for even uh, proposing such an idea. Now we see mounting evidence that it's not uh, uh, far-fetched at all. In fact, it's reality. So you've been ridiculed a lot in your life, but you have <laughs> a lot of resilience. Oh, so- yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm from a small town, uh, from a rural state. We think we call ourselves a third world state sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a, a big state with a few, a, a small population. So I, I, I grew up with that. I was from the country going to, to a small town. So the town kids always made fun of the country kids, you know, they were a little backward and all that kind of stuff. The, uh, the big towns made fun of the small towns. Uh, the big states made fun of the little states as far as, you know, remoteness and, 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 and lack of big cities and all that sort of stuff. I grew up like this. I, it didn't bother me. I knew that we had uh, things that they didn't have that we could appreciate and uh, enjoy that were valuable. And um, I, I was always – I wondered that – no one ever seemed to be satisfied with what they had. They always looked over the fence at something bigger or grander. And I felt it was more important to just to be happy with what you have and enjoy what you've got. Yeah, enjoy what you got. Be in the moment. And, uh, and maybe we would stop climate change if we could just learn to just enjoy what we have right now, right here. Yeah. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio um, on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. So Tom Hartman here for All Energy Solar. One of the myths about solar is that you save more if you wait, but waiting to switch can actually cost you more. While tax rebates make solar affordable, those rebates are often limited and decrease over time. So when you wait, you risk losing some of the incentives that make solar so easy to afford today. And besides, the sooner you get your All Energy Solar system, the sooner you reduce or even eliminate that high electricity bill. Make the switch today at allenergysolar.com. Visit the wine bar at Cafe Latte and enjoy a unique handcrafted pizza and glass of wine. The perfect place for an intimate night or an evening with friends. Choices range from spicy Italian sausage and sweet roasted peppers to the one-of-a-kind nacho chicken pizza layered with blue corn tortilla chips. The approachable wine list offers over 30 by the glass with special emphasis on wines from Washington State. End your night with one of Cafe Latte's melt-in-your-mouth desserts, 850 Grand Avenue, St. Paul. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. This is New Beginnings, hosted by award-winning broadcaster and speaker, Freddie Bell. Freddie, this generation of the baby boomers, people are living longer, so the baby boomers are taking care of elderly parents. Let's talk about your health, and specifically, let's talk about Medicare. Our show features the concerns of America's 78 million baby boomers in employment, finance, health and nutrition, and even entertainment. Catch New Beginnings with Freddie Bell, Saturdays at 11 on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hi, I'm Donna Minter, founder and executive director of the Minnesota Peacebuilding Leadership Institute. Please join us Wednesday, April 24th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Riverview Theater in Minneapolis for LunaFest, our women's film festival for community peacebuilding. We'll show eight internationally curated short films by, for, and about women. We'll raffle off seven baskets filled with thousands of dollars worth of gift cards, merchandise, and service vouchers. This year, Minneapolis City Council Vice President Andrea Jenkins will be our honorary LunaFest chairwoman. $25 gets you eight short films and festivities. $50 gets all of that and the after party at the Riverview Cafe. The best part is... The proceeds benefit Minnesota Peacebuilding Leadership Institute programs and our Racial and Economic Equity Trainee Scholarship Fund. To learn more and purchase tickets, visit mnpeace.org and find LunaFest under events. That's mnpeace.org. See you there.
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking with uh, organic farmer Bob Quinn. He's uh, the co-author with Liz Carlisle of a new book, Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revise, Revive Ancient Grain, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. And when we went to break, we just touched a little bit on climate change and how this um, this respectful approach um, uh, to the natural world can, can help us live in a resilient way, in a way that will honor future generations. Well, and the other thing that in regard to how organic farming can affect climate change, the thing that I always point out to people is that organic agriculture sequesters so much carbon that it could start in a significant way to reverse what we have done wrong to increase the um, release of carbon to the atmosphere. And if the whole world was organic, um, we would s- reduce that almost by as much as we've increased it. And then, of course, we have to change some of the other things to keep adding to it. But we could turn back the um, the big negative effect we've had just by um, a simple thing as um, the way we farm. And um, I, I, I want to make sure we get in some of this crackling Camut. Yeah. Um, this is great. It's not available locally, but one of the things yeah. I loved when you in your book that that you mentioned this is someone said, "Hey, this doesn't even look organic." Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> because so many. I mean, how do we make? And I know you're passionate. How do we make organic be commonplace and conventional be rare? Well, or old fashioned or yeah, out of date. Out of date. That'd be, that's like part that's of the past. Goal. Yes, it's part of our. At some point, I think people will look back and marvel uh, how we uh, took um, this turn in agriculture. For probably, it'll probably take a hundred years. We're, we're seventy years into it. Um, we're starting to severely question it now. I think it'll take maybe twenty or thirty, thirty years more to um, to change to the next to the next uh, phase, which will be sustainable and regenerative, uh, because. Um, the chemical agriculture is none of that. It's an artificial system that's built on artificial inputs coming at a great cost. And, Laura, you know, we talked earlier in the show about the high cost of cheap food. And to me, there's four different areas of that that really manifests itself. First of all, to the farmers who are growing crops that that they don't even receive enough income from to pay their expenses, they're contributing to the high cost of cheap food. It's high cost to them, but it's cheap food ends up cheap food on the on the um, grocery shelf. It, <clears throat> there's a high cost to our communities. When the farmers go broke, they're not able to support our local communities. Local businesses go broke. They decline. We see that all over rural America. There's certainly a high cost to our planet. We've touched on that, not only in climate change, but also in pollutions of great um, – we, we find glyphosate now in our rain. Glyphosate in the rain and second lawsuit that Monsanto's lost, it causes cancer and the bee population down. I mean, once you start knowing all these facts, it can be so oppressive. But glyphosate is in the rain. It's falling on our farm, and we've been able to measure it. And this is an additional high cost that is not paid for at the checkout counter in an effort to get cheap food. Um, the other final really high cost, and I, we touched on it earlier, is the high cost of, um, of disease. And many chronic diseases are linked to our diet of cheap food. It's not nutritious enough to keep us well. So you helped create the first wind farm in Montana. I want to make sure that was mentioned. Um, and you've been active in the political organizing on these issues for decades. What do we do? Well, we just keep um, plugging away um, one item at a time in our food basket when we go shopping. Um, we ask Congress to why uh, USDA only spends 1% of their entire research budget on organic when uh, 5% of the total groceries sold in the stores across America now are organic. Um, we are importing and, and about 1% of the farms are organic. So to keep up with the demand, we're importing a lot of organic food. We could be growing right here in America and keeping that money right at home. 
But many farmers don't know how to start their conversion. And if we had more research money devoted to solving problems of organic agriculture, we would see a big surge in conversion to organic, I believe. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about this on the consolidation of the food system. Four retail chains control four retail chains control half of the U.S. food market. Three uh, mega corporations control uh, the majority of the global seeds sold in the world. This is why it's very important to go to Seward Co-op, go to the Co-op, <laughs> support our local people yes. and build up our resilient communities ourselves and take responsibility for our own food. Um, the other thing I want to make sure I got in is this rural-urban divide that we're experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I, in the book, and I, it's a really well-written book, Grain oh, by you. Grain. I, I, I love the writing of the book. <clears throat> but there's the talk about the, the families knew which families went to the Farmers Bureau and which ones went to the Farmers Union. There's been a, you know, this is the blue side and red side of, of, of these divisions in this rural area, how can we make um, resilient food that helps soil and water and each other emerge past this Mm -hmm. polarity? I think the important thing to focus on is that we all eat and we all um, are involved in agriculture because we all eat. And what you and, and all of your listeners buy at the grocery store affects what I and all my other farmer uh, contemporaries uh, plant. And so if you uh, buy what you want to buy, you can start to change the direction of the whole system and help the farmers that are trying to convert like to organic and more sustainable methods by supporting that with your checkbook when you purchase your, your goods. We often um, are so separated, as you mentioned earlier, from our end users. We, we have a chance to reconnect with lo- farmers markets and supporting local grains and local uh, products that are grown in, the, in local stores um, much more. They can, they can provide services and uh, taste and flavors and quality that the big chains really are not able to do. And uh, I, I would take every opportunity to reconnect with uh, urban and rural and focus on the things that we have in common, <clears throat> and that is to grow good food and to be healthy. And I think that is the key. Uh, I said earlier about the importance of tying food and health together and changing the whole system and, and using that as a pull-through. <clears throat> and not only pull-through economically, but I think it will pull-through in very um, sociological ways, too. Yes, yeah, sociological, cultural, spiritual. Yes. Um, and so uh, how people can find you, Organic Farmer Bob Quinn. What's the best way to connect with you? Well, Bob Quinn, Organic Farmer. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's where you'll find uh, the – Facebook and the and the blogs and um, my thoughts that I write on there from time to time and also the uh, Instagrams and um, on this tour that we're involved in right now we're doing a book tour throughout much of the country this this year starting the first of March we focused on the West Coast and now a little bit of the Midwest this week and we'll be in Montana the next two weeks but then we will also look for us in the South and in the um, Northeast uh, yes, and throughout uh, the country. Throughout, and, and so it was a pleasure talking to you. And I wanted to make sure we started this with how one consumer thanking you um, really moved you away from commodity farming. And I, I actually loved when you thanked people at the end of the book and starting with your grandparents and just oh, thanking yes. that and the power of that recognition of of our value towards each other that's sort of outside of commoditization, conditioning. Well, I think that's part of their unity that we were talking about just a few minutes ago and, and reconnecting with each other, appreciating each other for what we all contribute to the community. That's so important. Yeah, Unity, Food Freedom Radio, AM 950.